Good morning. I'm Pastor Tom, one of the pastors here at New Hope Church. Welcome again to New Hope. Now, if you're wondering if a sermon had been preached, it has, but we're only at halftime. Okay? So, if you need to go out and use the facilities, get a drink of water, that's fine. Sitting next to a little girl, and a little girl brought her Bible along, and she's reading through her Bible, and the guy next to her says to her, do you like reading that Bible? She says, yes, I do. He said, well, how do you know it's true? She says, well, it's God's Word. He says, well, take the story of Jonah and the whale. Do you really believe that? Yes, I do. Can you explain, the guy says, can you explain how God would make a whale swallow a man like that? She says, well, I don't know. I'll ask God when I get to heaven. And the man says, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? She says, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> and that little story, the central issue of what we're talking about this morning, is the Bible trustworthy, is at stake. That story illustrates that we're talking about eternal issues this morning. We're not just talking about a cookbook and asking the question, does this cookbook have a good recipe for baking a cake? When we talk about the question, is the Bible trustworthy, it's a really, really important topic. Because last week we talked about the fact that we have real evidence for the reason why God exists. And this morning, the natural implication of if God exists, then has God spoken to us? And the answer is, Yes, he's spoken to us through his word. These are the kind of questions that were on my mind as a student at the University of Iowa many, many years ago. And I was searching out, asking, is the gospel really true? Has Jesus really come to earth? And can I trust in him for my salvation? Did he really die on the cross for my sins? Was he really resurrected to life? And can I trust the Bible as truth? So I went out to a bookstore and I bought a copy of Josh McDowell's book. In fact, I got it right here in my case here. This is the original one I bought. Still keep it just as a memento. Evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell, about 400 pages in this, just filled with notes that he put together as he was asking the same questions about who is Jesus and about whether we can trust the Bible. So some of the material that I share this morning comes out of that journey that I had in asking this very same question. We're going to start over in... 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. You can follow along either in your Bible. Some of the verses will be up here on the PowerPoint. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us you can trust the Bible because it's communication from God. It says all Scripture, talking about the Bible, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now when Paul wrote this, he's talking about the Old Testament for sure because as he's sharing with 
people sharing the gospel. He's building on Old Testament truth. And he's also talking about the books of the New Testament that had been written up until that time. So I agree with J.C. Ryle who stated the book, that is the Bible, the book itself is the best witness of its own inspiration. All scripture, it says, is God-breathed, breathed out by God, given to us by God. Some versions, maybe your Bible version, has all scriptures inspired. God-breathed is a more literal translation of the Greek there. The word inspired is okay, but when we hear the word inspired, we might think like Shakespeare was inspired. And he wrote his poetry, he wrote his plays. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about humans who wrote down words just because they were really smart or because they really knew a lot of religious kinds of things. We're talking about the fact that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's given by God. It's God's communication to us. He doesn't override people's minds. He doesn't give dictation. Now, occasionally he did that. Like Moses, for example, was told to give out the Ten Commandments, and God dictated to him. But ordinarily in Scripture, God uses people's personalities. And so when we see the letters of Paul, we see Paul's grammar. We see Paul's mindset. We see Peter's personality. And both work together. Scripture is God-breathed, and yet... People wrote it. You say, well, how can that be? Well, that's the way God works. How can Jesus be 100% God and 100% human? Because he's God, and likewise with his word. Scripture's origins are in the word of God. Now, a verse that helps us with this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This wording, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is wording that was used to describe a ship being pushed along the water, being pushed along by the wind. And when we talk about all scriptures God-breathed, when we talk about the fact that it's inspired by God, that's kind of the picture you can put in your mind, is that like the breeze pushing the sailboat, God pushed along his word, and yet in a ship, there's a rudder that can turn the ship, and so God used the rudder of people's tongues, people's minds, people's mouths to be able to produce scripture. Application right here. Are you amazed at this? Really? The God of the universe... The God who created the universe. You look up in the sky, and you see a little bit of our galaxy. You see the Milky Way. The God who created the universe communicates with us. Do you treasure that? Do you relish in the fact that God wants to speak to you, that he wants his word communicated to you? Do you love God's Word? Do you study it? Do you memorize it? Do you meditate on it? That's the first application this morning. Second point. 
You can trust God's word. You can trust the Bible because it's been accurately copied from the original manuscripts. So if we believe that God has communicated his word, now the question is, okay, does our English Bible reflect that communication from God? Bible in the Old Testament was primarily communicated in Hebrew. In the New Testament, primarily in Greek. And we have what are called manuscripts, copies of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so the question is, did the people who copied these manuscripts, did they do it accurately? We have copies of copies. How did they do in that? It's kind of like, you remember the old game of telephone, where you say something in somebody's ear, and then they... Pass it on to the next person. They pass it on to the next person. By the time it gets past five people, it becomes something ridiculous. And so, is the transmission of the Bible from one generation to the next, one copy to the next, is it just a giant game of telephone? The answer is no. The people who copied the scriptures, number one, they took great care in that copying process. They were very concerned to handle God's word in a very accurate kind of a way. So, one example, for example, one example is the Masoretes, who copied the scriptures from about 500 to 900 A.D. And what they did in order to make sure that they accurately copied the scriptures was they would number every word, count every letter in a book of the Bible that they were copying. And then we got to the end of it, they would make sure that the copy that they made had the exact number of words, the exact number of letters that was in the original that they had counted every word in and every letter in. And so it was a very, very exact process that they used to be able to transmit and copy the scriptures. Now, just how accurate were they? We weren't sure up until about 60 or 70 years ago. We knew that they handled the scriptures with great care, but we weren't sure exactly how accurate they were until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. March 1947, an Arab shepherd was out looking for a lost lamb, when he took a rock, threw it up into a cave. I've been there, seen this. Some of the things I'm going to show you throughout the rest of my PowerPoints are things I've seen, places I've been, fewer pictures that I've taken. So this Arab shepherd, he's out kind of following his sheep along, takes a rock, throws it up in the cave. Pow! He says, Dead Sea Scrolls. No, he didn't say that. He didn't know what they were. He just knew that Something had been smashed up there when he threw that rock up there, and he knew that there were people called archaeologists that looked for things in caves, and so he kind of goes and pokes around, and he finds these scrolls, these ancient scrolls. People start talking in Israel about this, and so experts come out, and they found nearly all the scrolls, except for the book of Esther, nearly all the scrolls of the Old Testament. They found, for example, the scroll of Isaiah, over 24 feet long, 10 inches high, 
contained the entire book of Isaiah. They found out that this scroll of Isaiah, and here's what you need to know. The people that copied the Dead Sea Scrolls, they did this from about 150 B.C., 150 years before Jesus, to about 100 A.D. And so, in producing the scriptures, in copying them, now we had scriptures that were before or right at the time of Jesus. And so, when we compared these with the transmission of the copies that were produced in 200 A.D., 300 A.D., 500 A.D., we found nearly identical copies. And so now we could say a gap of a thousand years and we have nearly identical transmission. The point being, this question of do we have an English Bible that we can trust? The answer is yes. We can trust it. There's small little differences, but nothing that is different in terms of what we believe and what we hold to. A little bit more on this, and you, you know, the fact is, people get PhDs in this kind of thing. So we're just like touching a little bit of the surface here this morning. If you wanted to dig into it really deep, you could go deep, but it's pretty complex. Here's another deal. When we come to the New Testament, there's about 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, that is copies of the New Testament, and other related places where the New Testament's quoted in things like in sermons and letters of early Christians. Well, we begin to compare the number of manuscripts with manuscripts of other ancient writers, for example, Plato and Thucydides. We have seven copies of Plato's Tetralogies, however you say that. And I got all this from Josh McDowell, that book I was showing you earlier. Seven copies, and yet people believe that it was an accurate kind of transmission of Plato's books. We have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad, 49 copies of Aristotle's works. And these are all authors, ancient authors, that we say, yeah, what they've written we believe that represents an accurate version of what they wrote. We come to the Bible, we have 5,000 copies. My point is that the number of manuscripts we have in the Bible way, is way more than what we have of other ancient books. Third reason why you can trust your Bible. We can trust it because archaeological discoveries corroborate it. Archaeological discoveries. And this is an area of interest to me I get uh, Bible Archaeology Magazine, um, Biblical Archaeology Review, and I like reading this kind of stuff. And again, you can go way deep into it if you want. First of all, Hezekiah's Tunnel. From really ancient times, there was a spring outside the city of Jerusalem called the Jihon Spring. G-I-H-O-N. Jihon Spring. In 1867, there was an explorer, an archaeologist, who found this shaft, this cave, right in Jerusalem. And he started to explore a little bit, and 
what he ultimately discovered is that it was a shaft that had been built in Hezekiah's time, King Hezekiah, in the 8th century B.C., eight centuries before the time of Jesus. And what he'd done, what King Hezekiah had done, is he diverted the water that just flowed outside the city of Jerusalem, and he dug this, this uh, cave that diverted the water so that it flowed inside the city of Jerusalem. Why did he do that? Well, 2 Kings 20, 20 tells us, As for the other events of Hezekiah's reign, all his achievements, how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city, and then 2 Chronicles 32, 30, it was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Jihon Spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David. The city of Jerusalem had been under siege by Assyria. That is, the Assyrians were trying to cut off Jerusalem from receiving food and water. And so Hezekiah, very smart, he knew they couldn't get outside the city of Jerusalem and get that water, so he just dug this tunnel and he diverted the water so it was inside the city of Jerusalem. I've walked through that particular tunnel, Hezekiah's tunnel. It's cool. I mean, it's, um, he just kind of comes up... Uh, about that deep, and you're walking through this thing, and you're thinking, this was built 800 years before the time of Jesus. And when they were going, here's something kind of interesting. They built it, they dug it out from each side of this little mountain, and when they got to the middle, they weren't exactly in the right place, so it kind of has an S-curve. And uh, we don't know if they just kind of just hit on the walls there in the middle and said, you over there? Yeah, we're over here. Yeah, you over here? Uh, of course, they said it in Hebrew, in, uh, but anyway. <laughs> Pool of Siloam, John 9, verses 1 through 11. We read the story of how Jesus healed a man. He took some mud, you remember, rubbed it on his eyes. This man was blind, and he healed his eyes so he could see. And then he told the man, he said, go to the Pool of Siloam and wash yourself off. So we know for centuries where the Pool of Siloam was. And, and this is cool. 2004. So not really that long ago in archaeological terms. 2004. This is the kind of story that I get excited about. 2004, engineers stumbled as they were doing sewage repair. Okay? Sewage repair. They're doing sewage repair. They stumbled upon the Pool of Siloam from 2,000 years earlier where Jesus had told this man to go and wash himself. So by the summer of 2005, they determined it was definitely the missing pool of Siloam. Mark Roberts, a scholar, says, In the plaster of this pool were found coins that established the date of the pool to the years before and after Jesus. There's little question that this is, in fact, the pool of Siloam to which Jesus sent the blind man in John 9. Very cool. Third illustration. Peter's house in Capernaum. Capernaum's a fun place to go visit. You can see the synagogue, kind of the floor there, the foundation, which was the foundation of the synagogue where Jesus went and preached. I think it's Luke chapter 4. But one of the other things that really caught my attention is the foundation of Peter's house. 
Peter the Apostle. You go into this kind of ultra-modern Catholic church, and they've got, so they've got glass there on the floor. You can look down in there, and down in there. It's the foundation of Peter's house. Peter Walker, another Peter, professor of biblical studies at Trinity School for Ministry, says graffiti that referred to Jesus as Lord and Messiah provides strong evidence that the room was used as a place of Christian worship, almost certainly because it was believed to be the room used by Jesus, perhaps the home of Simon Peter. Given that the early tradition goes back to the first century, so in the first century, they're honoring this house as the house where Peter had lived. It's almost certainly, he says, the very place where Jesus stayed, the home of his chief apostle, Peter. Fourth bit of archaeological evidence, and again, there's lots and lots and lots of reading you can do in this area. Just telling you a few of the things I saw. The Galilee fishing boat. There's a little museum that you can go to near the Sea of Galilee, and there they have this ancient fishing boat. What happened was a summer of, I think it was 80, yeah, 86. There was a drought that took, pl took place up in Galilee. And so the Sea of Galilee, like happens in a drought, it, the water went down. And there was the fishermen, they were kind of amateur archaeologists. And they found this ancient fishing boat preserved there in the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Now, was it the boat that Jesus preached from when he was preaching to people was that the boat that the disciples went out in and that Jesus came to them walking on the water? Well, probably not. I mean, it could be. But it's certainly a boat that was exactly like that kind of boat that the disciples would have been on the Sea of Galilee in. Could fit about 15 people, just the right size, that could have been used. Again, just things that point to the reality of Scripture. And over and over again, critics will say, well, that didn't happen. The Hittites didn't really exist. And then they find out, yeah, there's archaeological evidence. The Hittites were real people that interacted with Israel. And again and again and again, they find these kinds of things. I don't have time to go into it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You can trust the Bible because God's Word is actively at work in the lives of those who are willing Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying, if our hearts are right, then God's word penetrates our hearts. We open up, we respond, we grow in Christ. And this particular passage in Hebrews describes how that happens. It says that the word of God is alive, it's living, it's active. And what it does is it penetrates into our souls and our hearts. It sorts out our emotions and our motives helps us really think through, am I in, in alignment with what God's Word says? Am I open to what God's doing, both out in the world and in my own life? It reveals my intentions. And all of us, 
When we search our hearts, I know for myself, and say, God, you really showed me today how I need to respond, how I need to repent, how I need to align my life, myself, my words, my actions with who you are. Verse 12 uses the word, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's a word from which we get the word critic, and we don't necessarily like criticism or critiques, but we all know that a real and true critique helps us. And God's critique is wrapped in love. He's helping us to grow and respond and change. Finally, you can trust the Bible. Because God gives us all we need. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. The same power that created the universe is power available to you in Christ for change, for life, and godliness. An illustration. If you go to Target, you pick up a box of Legos. And maybe it's going to be made into a race car, maybe it's going to be made on a ship, whatever. You know, there's thousands of these things. And then you have to put it together. Now, you, you can just take it, and one of our boys would just take it and kind of just to throw the pieces all out. The other one would be very particular in putting all the pieces together. And life's kind of like that. We can either take and what God entrusts us with, we can just kind of throw it all over, or we can take care with it to put it together as God intends in his instructions. He gives us all things for life and godliness. Life refers to the Lord's work. Godliness refers to how we live out that work of the Lord from the inside out. So, through God's word, we grow in knowledge of him. We call upon his power. He changes us. Why do we study God's word? Because as we know God, we call upon God, we ask for his power. You know, fact is, we struggle with all kinds of problems, don't we? And we need to know, and we can know that we can trust God's word. When we have relationship problems, God has provided a way to work through our relationship problems if we respond and follow what he said. We talked about this. For the last four months, we've been talking about relational kinds of things. I did a series on biblical counseling. We did a series this summer on relationships. God has provided everything we need for open. If we trust his word as his truth to work through those relationship problems. We talked about finances a little bit this morning. Sometimes we have financial problems. God has provided his instructions, his word, to help us to know how to work through those financial struggles we have at times. We can trust God's word. Go to God's word. Grow in it. If you'd like to learn some more things about why we can trust the Bible, pick up Pastor Ryan's book on reasons to believe. We can learn about these things. We can grow in them. We can have confidence that we can trust God and we can trust his communication, his word to us 
and for us. Let's pray at this time. Lord, we thank you for this day. As we come to worship, we've come to learn and grow. Thank you for the, your Bible. It leaves nothing out. Gives us truth through which we mature. Gives us truth to bring blessings to us, to our church, to our world. Lord, uh, save us from the sin of uh, believing that our Bible is not sufficient, because it is. Lord, we pray for every need of life. I pray for every need within each and every person who is here today, that they might turn to you, your word, your truth, your life. Lord God, I pray that as I head to India this Thursday, give me facility of language and ability to communicate your word and to help the pastors and the leaders there. Lord God, we pray for New Hope Church. May we continue to be grounded more and more deeply. And may we share the good news of Jesus that's sufficient for all of life and all of godliness. Teach us, grow us, change us. For the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.